From the WUFT Newsroom in Gainesville, Florida, I'm Ethan Majok. Welcome back to The Point. This week, we have a story from one of our reporters who took a look at the area known as the Tower Triangle in southwest Gainesville. It's home to more than a dozen apartment complexes. Some are safe and others less so. Why is that? What factors determine whether a place is safe to live or not? We'll also circle back on two other big stories from this month, a local connection to the shooting in Las Vegas, and the community reaction to Richard Spencer's visit to Gainesville. Finally, it's the voice of a Vietnam veteran. We interviewed more than two dozen this year as part of a local companion to the PBS documentary from Ken Burns, and since then, we spoke with one more. You'll hear from him at the end of today's show. But first, I'm joined by WUFT reporter Cameron Cobb, who has spent nearly two months looking into the apartment complexes just west of I-75 and east of Tower Road. She's covering important stories in that 32607 zip code, and this is one of them. Cameron, how did you stumble onto the story of the Tower Triangle? Well, um, I'm a little bit unfamiliar with uh, that area myself, but I do know that it has kind of gotten a negative stereotype. Um, and I was assigned the zip code, and I really wanted to explore more about this and see if, if there were any trends and maybe why and maybe if there were any exceptions to see, okay, it's not just the area's issue, it could be this issue. So I was interested to see, especially for apartment complex living, because it is a big community in that area that lives in apartment complex with a lot of Section 8 housing and, you know, the Alachua County Sheriff's Office confirmed that with me that that was a big area for that. So I think it was just my curiosity about the area and kind of how things are going and how they've been going and where they can go from here. So you first started looking at this in late August. Um, How did you go about getting the data for the story and what did you learn from analyzing it? Well, what I did was I sectioned off a certain part uh, to make it more manageable for me to find the apartment complexes located within the triangle I was looking at. Once I got their addresses and I got Uh, the names of those places, I sent them into the Alachua County Sheriff's Office public records request just saying I would like the past two years of uh, calls for service data and it they told me it would take a little bit of time but I figured during that time I could kind of do some uh, just a little bit of digging on my own so uh, I waited about two weeks to receive the I think it was over 200 pages of calls for these places. And um, so that was really the start of it was, okay, I need this data and I need to go from here to see if there even is a story in place. And um, it was very obvious and apparent to me from the start once I started sifting through the pages that, hey, some of these only have a few and some have thousands and they're within a couple miles of each other. So something is here. And so what did we end up finding in terms of some that had the most calls? Uh, looked like Majestic Oaks was by far the leader, uh, just in terms of pure calls, but go ahead with, with other findings. Pure calls, definitely Majestic Oaks had almost, you know, 1,900. And when you're comparing that to Villas at Ashton Square, which 
you know, merely two miles away, they had five. So it was very, very drastic results. And what I did then is I, I didn't really think it would be fair to quantify it on just the number of uh, calls. So I figured out through either calling the complex or visiting the Alacho County property appraiser site how many units there were. And I divided out how many calls per unit per year that meant. And that actually was more of a surprise in the end because Majestic Oaks wasn't on top, which is what I would have thought. But because they had such a large amount of units, they were the second. And Tower Oaks was the first, which if you just look at the calls for service, it wouldn't appear that way. They would appear to be the fifth or sixth. So that's where I went from there kind of to start. One of the main measures that you looked at in your data was what a call for service was with law enforcement. For people who don't know what that is, the broadly speaking definition, what is it? I spoke with uh, Richard Hollinger. He was actually a professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminology at UF. And he kind of was the one who said, you know, you, you need to be looking at what the calls for service are. When any time law enforcement gets called out, so a 911 call is made, that is a call for service log. So. To give you an example, you know, shots fired, assault battery, but... Somebody may have locked themselves out of their apartment or their car won't start or, you know, this is why the county uh, has a 911 number, but it also has, uh, the county sheriff's department has a number that you can dial, you know, just to get the department, you know, so that, and they try to encourage people, unless it's a life and death situation, or, or a serious problem not to overuse 911. One of the calls for service was headache, you know? So it's some people call the police when they get locked out, they call when their power's out. So you really, they call for medical emergencies. So it's, it's anything and you really have to differentiate between what is non-medical and what is crime related. And Villas at Ashton Square, I made sure that, you know, not only did they have only five, but I, I saw what those were and they were all medical. So that's another important thing to think about is, and you know what, the 2000 of Majestic Oaks aren't all crime related. It's just a 911 call, but that doesn't mean tech, you know, that it's crime related necessarily. Did you visit one of those two or either of these complexes? What did you see? I actually went around that whole area and visited most all 15 complexes. I tried to, I visited the three that had the most calls per unit and the three that had the least, definitely. And what I noticed was the ones that Majestic Oaks from the outside would not seemed to me like something that would have that many calls. You know, they have a gate and the gate was open, so I don't know how much good it was doing, but it was almost like they had this visual of safety. But, and then right down the road was Tower Oaks, who nicely painted buildings, just this beautiful front to the property. Um, but once I started looking back, I noticed it just, I went in the daytime, but it looks like kind of, it didn't have a lot of lighting, proper lighting in the area, which is what I noticed. And um, uh, th by this point, I had already spoke with the Lacho County Sheriff's Office and knew that lighting was one of the biggest determinants. So, um, and then with the ones that had the least amount of calls, Villa at Ashton Square, I noticed it 
even though it was just down the road per se, it was very quiet. There was nobody walking around when I was there. You know, there the main office was right up front. It was there were signs everywhere about safety, and um, it just seems like a very calm, quiet environment. And uh, so that was what I noticed about the pretty extremes of them. In terms of the people who live there, what were some of the stories that that they, that they told you? Well, I spoke with somebody at Villas at Ashton Square, and it was funny because initially she had thought I had said that she had heard me wrong and thought I said they had the most. And she said, oh, I'm really shocked about that. It's so quiet here. And so that was really what confirmed it for me that this place, you know, she had no idea why I was calling. And here she is shocked about the data, this person who's just lived there a year. And so when I reconfirmed that, no, it had the least, she was like, oh, well, that's of no surprise to me. It's so quiet here. You know, here's this 24-year-old girl. She said she can feel safe to walk around at 3 and 4 a.m. Yes, yes. I've never felt like I, I never felt like scared to be outside like in the morning there. I go home like three or four in the morning and I can basically just walk around if I have if I want to. Yeah, she she just seemed comfortable where she was. She didn't even mention the area, you know, deterring her away. And then I spoke with a former resident of Tower Oaks Glen and he just, it did not take long for him to, it seemed like he had an endless amount of negative stories about the place. You know, even his own experience, he said, all I had to do was bring him cash to rent the place. And uh, that, that's all it took. And he said there were cop cars there almost every day, which with the data, it actually would have amounted out to them being there every day on average. And then, like one that I said was the last straw whenever the apartment on the other side of us got shot up in the drop-by. So, and I spoke with um, two other residents who did not live in Tower Oaks Glen, but they lived right outside, and they said they just, it was horrible there. They they just went on to talk about how much noise complaints there was and how it just got this stigma for always having something going on and how they didn't even feel safe being somewhere close by to that. So not even living in the neighborhood. And so I really just got this I didn't have to sift through people who were saying one thing about one place or one thing about the other place. It was like it coincided with my data because the people I spoke with at the safer places had nothing but positive things to say and these were just random residents and the people I spoke with at the places with more calls for service confirmed the calls so um, that was really interesting because I just wanted to see you know not many people will go explore this data and so it was interesting to hear it from their perspective, not even knowing what my results yielded. Hmm. So, Did you get to speak with any of the management companies of any of these places? Um, I did. I reached out to Majestic Oaks. Uh, I tried to call and they did not answer. I left an email and they never got back to me. Um, I tried to call Tower Oaks Glen. I couldn't find any website or email, so I couldn't reach out to them by that. But I tried to call multiple times. Nobody got back to me. I called Villas at Ashton Square, and I said I would like to speak with um, management. I have some data about uh, calls for service, and I'm doing a project on safety. Didn't tell them they were the 
you know, had the least amount of calls, didn't say anything. Within a couple days, the owner of the company called me back. He had no idea what I was going to say to him, but he was at least willing to speak with me. And that's why I didn't tell them at first, hey, I'm calling because you guys ended up had the least amount of calls. I wanted to see if they would give me a call back because an apartment complex manager who knows they're doing something right and who knows that their complex is safe is going to know that I have my results confirmed that. So I think that really showed a lot that he called me back himself and was more than willing to answer any questions. Even when I asked, you know, it, it is a high crime area. He he admitted that himself, but he said, you know, you can do measures as residents and management to protect yourself from that. And if you be the exception and if you be that place that shows, hey, it's not just the area's fault, you can't blame this location, then you're the exception and people are going to start coming to you and people are going to start coming back and you hold people. And so that just really showed me a lot about the complexes of who got back to me versus who didn't. Um, as well as what the numbers said. Right, so, exactly. Um, any other advice for people who want to live in one of those areas, uh, one of those complexes, I should say, in this area, in the Tower Triangle? I think my advice would be that don't don't judge it just from what people say because you know Villas at Ashton Square is two miles away and another one Cricket Club uh, two is a couple miles away and they had incredibly you know amazing safety measures put into place and they said that they make sure their or villas at ashton square said they ensure their residents know that they're going to be upheld to standards and it they don't give second chances on big offenses and so you need to be checking out the place at night you need to be going beyond the model tour that was something really important that um Alachua county sheriff's spokesman said to me is so many people just see the amenities and all this stuff and think wow this is uh this is the place for me but if you don't go beyond that you're not you know you're not living in the floor model you're going to be living in the place when it's 3 a.m and the lights are out in the back and you're going to be living in the place that people hang around who you may not be familiar with so familiarize yourself with those places for long periods of time before making a decision you know and safety is the most important thing you can get from a living situation and it should be the most important concern when you're looking for somewhere to live. All right, Cameron, thank you for your reporting. Oh, absolutely, thank you for having me. You can see Cameron's full report at wuft.org. This month, America saw its worst mass shooting in history, just a year after what's now the second worst mass shooting at Pulse in Orlando. Reporter Aaron Zeiler interviewed Margaret Hammer, who is the legislative director of the Moms Demand Action Gainesville chapter and was one of the people who helped organize the Gainesville vigil for the Las Vegas shooting. Here's her story. When I was in eighth grade, a classmate of mine was murdered going home from school. Uh, we were in the same homeroom. She sat catty corner from me for a year and a half. And yeah, she was going home from school and got caught in a drive-by. So I've known for a long time the, the destructive nature of, of guns and firearms and uh, you know, as I've gotten older, I've had more of an opportunity to see the, the wider impact. And uh, I was looking for something that, that could make a difference, and Moms Demand Action is a group that does that. So on the evening of Sunday, October 1st, an individual gunman 
set up an arsenal in a hotel room and was able to murder over 50 people. Over 500 people were injured. These things just happen over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, I'd like to say that I was surprised when I woke up on Monday morning, but I wasn't. I was horrified and I was angry. I think the, the most important thing we can do is remember that none of this is normal. There are countries in the world that do not talk about their last mass shooting or their most recent mass shooting. This, this is not normal. This is very unusual. It's not something we have to be comfortable with or accept. So by the time I woke up on Monday morning, um, the women that I work with in Moms Demand Action had already started to set up the vigil. Unfortunately, we've had prior experience with this, so we were able to mobilize fairly quickly. When Katie uh, hit the chime 59 times uh, to take the moment to remember them, I think I was struck by that, and I think most of the people I spoke to afterwards were struck by just how long that takes. You know, it, it really kind of brings home how many people were killed. You know, having, having a kid kind of influences everything you do. Um, knowing that my daughter's daycare does active shooter drills. That's really appalling. As a parent, it's scary. Um, it's definitely good motivation to stay involved in a group that's trying to make a difference. The Richard Spencer visit to the University of Florida consumed nearly all of our attention last week, and one story that we published during the run-up was inspired by a question from one of you. It's part of our Find Out Florida series, and listener Shirley Lassiter wanted to know the precise volume of calls, letters, and emails received by the UF administration in the run-up to his visit. It took us a few weeks to try to track down the answer, which you can read in full on our website. But basically, UF spokeswoman Janine Sykes told us there were too many to count. Turns out that's also the answer, for now, to the question of how much his visit precisely cost the university and nearby law enforcement agencies that provided security. We asked for that accounting total this week. We're told it wasn't available yet. In the meantime, two universities up north are putting up a fight against Spencer and his campus tour. Spencer's supporters have sued both Ohio State and Penn State universities in the days since the UF event. The Center Daily Times in Pennsylvania reported of the plaintiff Cameron Paget this week, quote, He wants Spencer to speak on campus, he wants a judgment of $75,000, and he doesn't want to pay for police protection for the speeches. The Columbus Dispatch also ran a story headlined, Ohio State could learn from Florida's security for Richard Spencer's speech, and detailed all that went into protecting the event. In the coming weeks, we'll bring more updates from those lawsuits, as well as the court cases of the three men accused in the shooting that took place after the event here. All three are still in jail. Our series titled Florida Voices, Vietnam Veterans Last Month drew many of you to our site to listen to the stories of what a generation of men and women experienced in Southeast Asia and afterward. We're still listening, and this month we got a call to the newsroom from another veteran with the great name of Tony Magnifico. Tony's story is a little different in that he was a Marine who went from killing people in Vietnam to wanting to marry one. Today, he and his wife, Lan, live in Gainesville. My name is Tony Magnifico. My place of birth is Patterson, New Jersey. A date of birth is October 29, 1948. 
And then that war came out, the Kuwait War. And that's, that's when everything really became a realization that I was in trouble because coming back from Jersey, I thought I was having a heart attack, but it turned out it was a panic attack. And then they kept me uh, in a locked ward, told me I had PTSD. And I says, no. My fiance and I, we do not play around. And I know she doesn't fool around, and I don't see any other people, you know, girls. He said, no, it's not a venereal disease. What do you mean? And he said, post-traumatic stress disorder. Post-traumatic who? Well, you know, and that's when they tried to tell me that I had some kind of a mental disorder. So they medicated me in a locked ward. I guess it was in there for about two weeks. That was oh, that was one of my attempted suicides after that. Yeah. I, I did that three times, attempted suicide. But anyway, that's not important. The thing is that when they discharged me, he says, you gotta go down and pick up your script. I said, well, okay. And then, then you keep, yeah, every month you refill. What are you talking about? 10 days is all you need. You know, when you get a medication for a virus, you take it for 10 days and that's that. I didn't know how to take it forever. You know, and, and they had a big series of medications. And then they, made, they had me go to a psychiatrist to follow up, and that's when I, started, I didn't really believe I had this problem, actually. I was just going through a pace. And then the flashbacks started coming. And that's when I moved to Boston. Very luckily got into a program there. Jamaica Plains was the first hospital there. And then we, uh, after about eight months, I went into a, a very intense program. It was a five-month inpatient program. For PTSD, and in that program, they—they uh, they, what happens? You go back into war, but you have your family deliver you to the ward. That's the um, the doctors, and they said we're going to take care of your son. And they said he'll be safe, and we'll give him back to you, and you continue loving him, and we'll help you with that. Now we didn't get that when we went to Vietnam. We didn't get that when we came back. So that's where they taught Rachel and my sister about my condition. And that's where I learned that I actually had, I, my was very severe of post-traumatic stress. So was instead program, of doing... Was that program affiliated with the VA? Yeah, the yeah, Council? oh yeah. National Center of VA, West Haven, VA, West Haven, Connecticut. Dr. Johnson and Dr. Lubin. And Dr. Johnson was the, uh, he was the head doctor of national... PTSD in New England area, and uh, it was five month period. They increased it mine up to nine months because it was too it was too severe, and that was good. And then I ended up working as uh, an assistant to a social worker to help the veterans not sabotage their own program, because at that point in time. I had already committed suicide in that program. Altogether, fourteen did before I left, and that's when I became. That's when I. That's when I really learned that I suffered post-traumatic stress disorder. That I had all these symptoms that they pointed and taught us about, taught us how to manage it, how to accept it, how to recognize the triggers, 
the, especially the warning signs, what to do when all that's going down, cut down the amount of work that you normally do. And then I made a commitment. At the end of the program, they asked us to write a little letter. And I wrote something called The Lost Warrior. And in that Lost Warrior, there's I, and there's every person who comes back from a combatant situation. And it doesn't have to be military. Could be abuse from a mother, a rape. It's not just, not exclusive to military. So I made a commitment to help and find any lost warrior out there and bring it back home like I got, that they gave to me. So I've been doing that since, what was that date? 1991. So the turning point for you, obviously. Big turning point. No, the, yeah, but no, it was the beginning of a turning point. It took me seven years to accept the fact that I suffered that. You know, it was many flashbacks. Uh, I, my longest flashback was three days in the jungle. It was actually in Amesbury. It's not a jungle, it's just a forest. But that's what happens. Mm -hmm. But then the turnaround for me, the turnaround was when I came out of prison. I was I was in prison for three, almost three years. I made a commitment to get my own self-respect back. I made a commitment to to, to become God conscious. And if God wishes, maybe I can go back to the priesthood. That, that's what I wanted to do. But in doing that, I met a Vietnamese lady, not my wife, it was a doctor, and we fell in love, and that lasted about a year. We moved to D.C. But then the good news comes. I came out of church in October, and this, guy, this fella told me that a miracle is going to happen tonight. There's something very favorable from God. It's happened in the church. And there was, I wrote some letters to something called Vietnam Cupid. And I'd been receiving in Vietnam Cupid responses from many different girls. And I got all of them had these beautiful pictures and all that sort of stuff. But there was one particular that was very different. Very sort of, I don't know, just casual, but not all that cheesecake stuff. And it was my wife. And so we spoke, I made a commitment, and I said, we're going to talk for 30 days, but we're going to, we're going to, you're going to tell me two things, and I'm going to do the same. You're going to tell me one bad character about yourself and one good, and I'm going to do the same. We're going to do that for 30 days. Well, I don't think it lasted two weeks. There was nothing else to reveal. And I said, well, I think when, it's, uh, when I see you, what I think is unfolding, is going to be something that God intends us to have, which could be marriage. When I arrived in Tunsonut Airport, that's like Ho Chi Minh City Airport, coming out of that, coming out of that airport, there was thousands of people there. And then my wife told me she was short, so I had a funny feeling that she probably lost her legs, by the way, in the war, but that was okay. I wasn't I didn't mind that. And then, as it came out, sure enough, I guess she did lose her legs. Maybe it's okay, God, I, I, I made that commitment. And then she was standing, <laughs> you know, and my little, little lad was right there, and 
What year was that that you that you met? Two thousand eight. That was that was what three or four days left before Tet the lunar year. And was that your first trip back to Vietnam? Yeah, yeah it sure was. And the third, second day after we met, I went to mother's home and I proposed marriage to mother, asked her hand, hand in marriage. And I made a commitment. And mother accepted it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> they didn't even know that she was gonna be meeting me, by the way, that was the funny part. And uh, I was the, uh, proudly to say I was the first man that my wife ever even kissed. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, you kissed your dad. You can listen to Tony's entire story at our website, wuft.org. Thanks for joining us this week. If you haven't already, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and send us your questions at wuft.org slash findoutflorida.